the Lloyd's List Shipping Podcast. Welcome to the Lloyd's List Podcast. I'm Richard Mead, editor of Lloyd's List. Business is anything but usual right now. But as the shipping industry grapples with the immediate daily crises, CEOs are also nervously looking ahead to fathom just how detrimental the coronavirus crisis is going to be to the world economy. Those of a nervous disposition would have done well to have avoided the news altogether this week. On Tuesday, the IMF forecast the steepest downturn since the Great Depression of the 1930s. On Thursday, economists essentially predicted a lost decade of growth for Latin America and the Caribbean. And as we record this week's edition of the podcast on Friday, 17th of April, the latest figures from China's National Bureau of Statistics have just emerged, revealing that China's economy shrank for the first time since at least 1992 in the first quarter, as the coronavirus outbreak paralysed production and spending. Joining me this week to put these figures into context and explain what the coronavirus lockdown means for trade demand is Tom Rogers, Head of Macroeconomic Consulting for Asia at Oxford Economics. Welcome to the podcast, Tom. Uh, thank you, Richard. Uh, also joining this week uh, is podcast regular Sichuan Chen, Lloyd's List very own China editor. Thanks for joining us, Sichuan. Thanks, Richard. Um, now, Tom, let's start with your view of these these various forecasts we've been hearing this week. Um, the IMF's Great Depression scenario, is is that uh, overplaying it or, or, or likely reality in your view? Uh, well, I mean, describing any forecast as, as, as a likely reality at the moment, I think, is, is very difficult. You know, the... Uh, the key word we're using when we speak to our clients is, is uncertainty um, and also scenarios. And so, you know, the IMF's latest forecast at a, at a 3% contraction for the world economy in 2020 is, is pretty much consistent with our latest view, uh, which we published uh, last week. Um, and uh, as you say, that's that's by far the, the worst outcome since since the Great Depression of the 1930s. And to put it in context, you know, the, the world economy contracted 1% in 2009. So uh, clearly a much sharper uh, contraction in, in 2020 than, than, than we saw in, in the great financial crisis. You know, but at the same time, there's potential for it to be at least a U-shaped recovery, depending on you know, what you think the, the key likelihoods are around when the pandemic will be contained and, you know, based on some, some reasonable assumptions about the pandemic being contained through the next quarter or two and, and the world getting back to work from Q3 onwards, then, you know, we think that that 3% contraction in 2020 can, can reverse quite quickly and we'll see uh, quite a lot of catch-up growth in 2021. But but there's a lot of different uh, assumptions embedded within that. Mm. Well, I mean, let's let's take some of the sort of the more regional views. Obviously, looking at a macro forecast on a global basis, it misses out a lot of nuance in terms of the regional variations. I mentioned China, but I mean, in terms of how that uh, forecast breaks down on a on a slightly more granular level, give us give us a view of what the sort of the regional uh, outlooks look like. Well, well, perhaps this, I mean, perhaps it makes sense to start with you know the good news insofar as that it exists. And um, you mentioned in your introduction that the Chinese Bureau of Statistics reported a Q on Q contraction for the first time since 1992 in Q1. Um, but you know, more positively, you know, Chinese factories do seem to be getting back to work quite quite vigorously. Um, we we were following some of the key kind of high frequency indicators on China, like coal consumption and pollution measures and, and those types of things. And what you see as we've as we moved into uh, the second quarter of the year, so the last couple of weeks in particular, is that 
those those variables, those indicators are starting to rebound quite rapidly. Um, so power production at uh, the six key power companies that, that we have data available for, that's back up to something like 80% of where it should be uh, at this time of year or this time uh, since Chinese New Year. And uh, we estimate that about 80% of the workers who were affected by uh, lockdown factories uh, are back at work now. So, you know, the, the, the easing of the restrictions uh, that we've seen, the easing of the lockdown measures uh, means that uh, a lot of uh, the, the, the parts of China's economy that were behind that contraction in 2020 Q1 are starting to get back online. So I think that's that's a, that's quite a positive uh, outlook for, for China, at least. But having said that, the you know the impacts on China's economy are, are still going to be felt for uh, quite a little quite a little time yet. The um, you know, there will be losses to household income. There'll be there'll be losses to business investment, for example, um, and that means that the recovery in China uh, will will take uh, probably until uh, the latter half of this year to really get going uh, in in terms of the the, uh, the the pace of growth getting back to where we might normally expect it to be. So seven seven and a half percent, perhaps. Um, but that's 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 good news as far as as China is concerned. Um, and then, you know, the reality is that that path for recovery uh, is probably delayed by about a quarter uh, in the rest of the world. And so we're likely to see the steepest downturns uh, as far as, for example, the, the US and the Eurozone are concerned in, in the quarter to come, really. We, we, we talk about these figures, but I mean, in terms of extrapolating what they mean for the shipping industry, obviously, there is a deferral of the impact and then the actual impact on the industry itself. And Sichen, you've been looking at specifically the uh, the rebounding of, of container volumes from China. We've heard a lot about the blankings coming out. That 6.6% figure, I mean, yes, it's bad, but perhaps not as bad as some were actually expecting in terms of, uh, you know, potential impact for, for shipping, surely. Yeah, I mean, the 66% uh, contraction in China's uh, export in March, uh, in, in US dollar terms, uh, is actually, uh, you know, uh, not as bad as uh, uh, many uh, economists uh, have uh, expected earlier, uh, which should be at least partly uh, reflected into the container shipping volume. But, but as you said, you know, uh, lots of these exports are deferred cargo from uh, February or late January when uh, China was under lockdown and the Chinese ports were unable to be uh, fully functional uh, due to the work shortage. Uh, so that means actually uh, April is likely to be more challenging uh, from a liner shipping perspective uh, without the deferred cargo and at the, at, at the same time with a lack of new cargo uh, from uh, from the large uh, consumer countries which are currently under lockdown. Uh, I mean, the container shipping carriers are uh, probably going to see a uh, even less volume uh, in April. And also, um, if you uh, look at the uh, recent moves by uh, the, the Alliance uh, with Haploid, Wan uh, Yangming and HMM, uh, the new partner, um, they have announced plans to cancel and merge a string of services on uh, the main east to west trade uh, for May and June. So uh, from that, you can see uh, how they view the demand further down the road. Um, 
uh, also, um, uh, when it comes to dry bulk shipping, I guess a lot of people are uh, in the industry are actually uh, paying attention uh, to the infrastructure investment campaign, which China is currently pressing ahead. Uh, but bear in mind that this time is quite different from what we've seen uh, after the uh, 2009 financial crisis. Uh, this time it is called the new infrastructure, um, which mainly uh, consists of uh, projects like high-speed rail trains, uh, you know, ultra-high voltage power transmission, charging powers, 5G, AI, cloud computing. Um, the thing is that only the construction of high-speed rail train is going to, you know, generate a large amount of uh, steel demand uh, that might be uh, enough to drive uh, the volume substantially. Uh, so when it comes to dry box shipping, I mean, there's a big question mark on whether the new infrastructure this time uh, can really drive up demand for uh, commodities such as iron ore, um, like we uh, witnessed in the previous. Uh, uh, but but anyway, I mean, uh, the thing is that uh, the, the Chinese uh, uh, government is going to have its uh, People's Congress gathering uh, next Monday. Uh, probably May the 10th, as reported by some uh, local media, uh, when Beijing is going to announce its GDP target for this year and various of uh, details, uh, detailed you know, uh, economic uh, policies. So mm. uh, probably, uh, hopefully we'll get a clear picture next month uh, you know, after the Congress meeting. Well, we'll certainly be keeping an eye on that. I mean, Tom, obviously everybody is looking at China. It is such a, a key bellwether in terms of the global economy, but not all economies are equal, of course, and you know China's ability to rebound is not the same as everyone else's. Where do you see the uh, you know the, the positives and the negatives? I guess in terms of the speed and the pace of any you know downturn followed by a recovery. Well, I mean, you know, we we've been looking at a, a number of ways to try and um, you know calibrate and quantify how vulnerable economies are uh, to the economic impacts of of the COVID outbreak, uh, and also. You know how, how equipped they are to support a rebound. I think on the on the first of those, you know, it, if you, if you're looking across economies and trying to gauge how damaging the impact of COVID-19 will be, then some of the metrics that we're looking at are obviously the age structure of the population, uh, the reliance of economies on commodities exports, uh, which have which have obviously been absolutely hammered in price terms. Uh, over the last month or two and, and seem likely to take uh, quite some time to rebound. Um, and then also um, the, uh, the extent to which they uh, rely on uh, global supply chains to uh, produce goods and services for uh, consumption internally. So all those types of all those types of metrics um, feed into our assessment of how uh, how vulnerable different parts of the world are to to the COVID outbreak. Um, and at a very high level, uh, obviously there's a lot of variation between regions uh, or within regions uh, as well as between regions. You know, our view is that by and large, uh, the Asian economies, the emerging Asian economies tend to be a bit more robust uh, in terms of uh, being able to deal with, uh, or, or in terms of the scale of the likely near-term impacts uh, of COVID-19. That's, that's largely because they, uh, rely less on commodity exports than they have um, fewer, uh, you know, a lower share of, of old age population. So uh, less likelihood of major uh, health impacts, perhaps. 
Mm. Uh, and then when you look into Latin America, obviously very high commodity uh, reliance uh, in Latin America in the export mix. Uh, so very vulnerable from the export side. Uh, and then uh, European economies uh, tend to be uh, amongst the oldest populations in, in the world as well. So that's one way in which we're looking at understanding uh, how impacted uh, different economies will be by the by the near term shock. Then you look at the recovery and uh, you ask, well, you know, which countries are, are most plugged into uh, the countries that, that, that can that can rebound faster. So to China, as we say, is uh, is likely to be uh, recovering uh, in the second half of this year. Uh, and some countries within within Asia Pac are obviously well placed to benefit from that. But it's also more about, uh, in our view, where governments are going to be best able to protect households and businesses from the financial impacts of the downturn. So uh, in Asia, for example, debt burdens amongst governments are very low uh, and they've been able to provide the most generous uh, stimulus packages in terms of fiscal support for businesses and workers. Uh, And in in different parts of the world, um, we're thinking about Europe in particular here, uh, debt burdens are already very high and it's going to be very difficult for governments to really shield businesses and households from the full impacts of the crisis. So we're, we're thinking about this in terms of uh, the near-term uh, impacts of, of the outbreak and also uh, countries' ability to bounce back and the factors that will be important there. Mm. I mean, you mentioned 2008-2009 at the beginning of the, the, the podcast, and obviously in the wake of that, we saw a number of uh, national stimulus packages focused in some respects on infrastructure spending, on things that were going to drive the uh, shipping seaborne trade figures uh, and uh, it, it turned out to be actually quite positive for shipping in the end. This set of stimulus packages, as Asishin sort of alludes to, not not everything is actually it's, going to benefit <clears throat> trade in the same way and it's, it's a different yeah. set of it's scenarios. Very, very different, very, very different form of stimulus packages and, and and, and that's essentially because governments are looking at the impact. I mean, in the in the US, for example, you know, jobless claims up 22 million um, over the last few weeks. That's that's basically wiping out all the jobs created since 2008-9. Um, so absolutely, you know, apocalyptic impacts on on labour markets and, and what governments are, um, you know, the priority is making sure that those job losses, firstly, don't become permanent. Uh, and so providing businesses with the support to get through these difficult times and, and making sure that they can rehire workers um, and, and create those jobs again, but also protecting households from the impacts of losing their jobs for, let's say, for the, for the sake of argument, at least a, a few months. So protecting them uh, in terms of their ability to pay their bills, to pay their mortgages and, and preventing uh, a job loss from becoming a personal bankruptcy. Those are the types of those are the types of triggers if they if they happen, you know, business insolvencies and personal bankruptcies that could mean that, you know, the 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 downturn, the recession we're seeing the first half of this year carries on into the second half and into 2021. So those are the priorities for fiscal policy right now. And the size of those packages is is way bigger uh, in some countries than in, in 2008-9. That just reflects the the very urgent priorities to to protect households and businesses. Um, some of the some of the countries uh, that we've been talking about, so I think particularly in the eurozone, will actually have to take a look at 
investment budgets coming out of the crisis um, and think about which 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 areas of spending to cut. Uh, and so it might actually be that infrastructure investment is one of the casualties uh, of having to balance the books coming out of, of this crisis. Mm. And Sishin, I mean, it's, it's a little bit uh, early to be thinking along these lines, but one of the key stories I think we've been seeing playing out is the disruption that this has caused to supply chains. Now, in terms of shipping, uh, you know, we, we we have been looking at this for, for years, questions of nearshoring, reshoring, as uh, trade lanes shift and patterns uh, develop uh, in terms of the global economy. There's some uh, early signs, I guess, that you know, the response to this might actually accelerate some of those trends. Certainly, um, you know, we've seen some national statements around, uh, you know, companies coming back uh, in terms of the manufacturing and, and really just, I think it has exposed a level of risk in some of the international supply chains that probably weren't front and centre in national government's minds um, before this sort of black swan came paddling into view. Any any thoughts, anything you're hearing in the market about fundamental changes to supply chains and, and, and trade rerouting? I mean, this manufacturing relocation uh, from China to the other part of the world uh, to reduce the supply chain risk or reliance uh, on China uh, has always been uh, there. Uh, but definitely uh, because of this virus, we've seen a growing, um, how to say, an anti-China sentiment as uh, along with the uh, fears uh, of China taking over the world. Um, uh, is definitely going to, uh, as you said, speeding up uh, that process. I mean, recently uh, there are news uh, about, you know, US and Japan encouraging their uh, domestic companies to move back their uh, factories from China again uh, on fears of the reliance on China for the supply of uh, uh, respirators and the facial masks. Yeah. Uh, those critical sort of, uh, you know, health equipment uh, uh, when in face of a public uh, health crisis. Um, so these are, in my view, uh, dangerous signs for, for shipping industry and the shipping companies. Uh, and even uh, the ports uh, in China, at least, uh, because that means, you know, uh, the that, that will largely, uh, you know, shift the trade patterns in the long run. Uh, but unfortunately, I think, uh, you know, there will be some repercussions uh, in the manufacturing sector, uh, which may very uh, much affect the uh, shipping uh, business after this global pandemic is over. Uh, I'm not sure if, if Tom has, uh, you know, some different views uh, on that. No, I, I think I think um, I, I, I'd, I'd agree with what you said, Sitchin. And, um, you know, the uh, <laughs> I guess one of the positive Things that we can say is that uh, the um, what's going on has at least made us forget about the, the global trade war that's dominated the previous two years. Um, but you know, it's it's difficult to see how trade relations um, uh, between the US and China, in particular, I guess, um, will will go back to normal after after this. And you know, I think it does raise the it clearly raises the. The risk of further tensions between the US and China further down the line on all sorts of issues. Um, and therefore, you know, potentially, you know, as, as we do get back to some semblance of business as usual, um, 
the the very gradual improvement that we saw on trade relations at the end of 2019 um, will start, you know, potentially will start to unwind as um, as, as you know, President Trump in particular um, starts to starts to focus again on on his preoccupations from from 2018-19. So I think that there probably is a range of factors driving um, in that direction of of offshoring from China. Uh, either back towards uh, consuming economies or certainly uh, out into to wider Southeast Asia. You uh, you caveated the, um, the, sort of the vagaries of long-term economic forecasting at the outset, but uh, anyone predicting what Trump is going to do even tomorrow, I would say, is sort of <laughs> talking into the realm of guesswork, but uh, certainly something to look out for. Um, let, let's just uh, finish on... Um, you know, a short view in terms of the shape of the recovery. You mentioned, uh, you know, it, it likely to be a U shape. Um, we, we've we've heard some more optimistic people on this podcast over recent weeks talking about potential of a V shape recovery. Um, the, uh, the, the the pessimists, I guess, are still looking at something that looks a little more L shaped, i.e., no recovery. Um, I, I'm assuming you sort of fall somewhere into the uh, in, into the middle. But give us a, a quick. Uh, layman's uh, understanding of, of why you think it, it's more U than V right now. Well, I, I think the reality is that you, you know, we're wa- we're waiting to see what the impact is on on labour markets around the around the world. But you know, 22 million jobless claims in the US. Um, you know, it, it's it's implausible to think that 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 there won't be some financial scarring from that amongst US consumers, and US consumers are are key for. You know, the whole world economy essentially um, as, as the world's richest economy and the world's richest consumer so it, it's difficult to see that there won't be some financial scarring that um, delays uh, the full rebound um, and so you know the key judgment from our perspective is is how long the lockdowns continue um, how many jobs are lost because of that and, and how much financial scarring there is and and if you had um, you know a, a one period lockdown uh, where everyone's job was protected and 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 it went back went back to work, then then it's plausible to think of a complete V-shaped recovery where where there's no lost output. But the longer the lockdown goes on, um, the more scarring there will be, and the more uh, households uh, see real damage to to their to their wealth and to their to their incomes. Um, in in our macro forecasting uh, for the US, we've we've assumed that the Lockdown measures are in place for 10 weeks um, from from the start of when they were first imposed, and, and they're imposed in, in a variety of different ways across the US. Uh, but based on that uh, assumption of of 10 weeks, our view of the US economy is is minus 4% GDP for this year. But if they were to go on for 16 weeks, uh, then the US economy would shrink 8% this year, uh, in our view. And obviously, the impacts on household incomes and household wealth. Uh, and the degree to which people have to to foreclose on their homes are very different in those two scenarios. And and if they're very different, then it takes longer for the recovery to kick in. So that's really the the kind of um, kind of rationale behind our view that we're, we're probably going to see more of a U uh, than a V in the world economy. Wonderful. Uh, thank you very much for joining the Lois List podcast, Tom Rogers and Sushin Chen. Thank you very thank much, you. Richard.